Well, on a warm summer morning, on the Brooklyn Bridge, a man stops, cold in his tracks. Now, the year is 1895. One may now walk across this newly constructed Brooklyn Bridge, taking the journey from Manhattan to Brooklyn, except for a toll booth in the middle of the bridge. Now, to be clear, in its first eight years of opening, this is late 1880s, tolls were collected to cross the bridge. Five cents to walk by foot, ten cents with a wagon, five cents per cow, two cents per hog. But a booth in the middle of the bridge? This booth appeared overnight. It was placed there by immigrants. They purchased the bridge from a man named George C. Parker. At least that's what they thought they did. George C. Parker was one of six names this individual went by. The man was what we might call a grifter, a con artist. He preyed upon immigrants arriving through New York into America. And this bridge con of his, it worked many times, so much so, it birthed the phrase, if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. And this Parker fella, he's not one to limit himself either, not with his abilities. He sold the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He sold the Statue of Liberty. He sold Madison Square Garden, and posing as his grandson, he, po- he sold Grant's tomb. How could anyone be so foolish to be taken like this? Well, there's two reasons. Parker was a pro. The man was a master of deceit. The man was a master con. He was good at what he did. He knew how to deceive and he knew how to prevail. Secondly, the people wanted what he sold. It scratched them where they itched. Wealth and prosperity and the American dream, all of these things they wanted. And this morning, friend, I contend that for each of us, there is a Parker in our lives. Crafty, shrewd, and brilliant, keenly deceptive, a master salesman who knows our weaknesses and understands our desires. In a word, our Parker is temptation. Looking to sell you what you want and sell you what you don't. I'm here this morning to tell you that you can refuse his sale. That it is God's will that you say no to temptation and that God gives you grace to say no. This Lord, this we speak of, our Lord God, He is with us, He is for us, and it is by Him that we do not sin. So this morning, I want to share with you three truths about God in your moment of temptation. Our text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is a popular verse. Some may have this verse memorized. 
This morning, I would say we are in between books in the style of preaching at Emmanuel. It's an expositional preaching, typically verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Well, we're in between books today, and I want to take the opportunity to present this verse to you, to give you some, some tools for the tool belt as you do battle with temptation day in and day out. I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, really verses 1 through 13, to gain the context for this one verse. Again, the focus will be verse 13, but all of this leads up to it, and all of it's bound together in it. Here, Paul's going to reflect on Old Testament Israel and, and use them, or use their liberation from Egypt as an illustration. Paul writes, chapter 10, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In the focus of our time together this morning, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You know, one danger of the one sermon or the one first sermon is losing the context, and I don't want to do that today. So I want to start out big and, and, and get small. I want to start out at 30,000 feet and zoom down here to this verse. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that, that Paul wrote to a church. And this church at Corinth, to borrow a boxing metaphor, was on the ropes. And it's not just that this church had a problem. It's that this church had multiple major problems. In the first six chapters, Paul's addressing problems with unity and purity. In chapter 1, verse 11, there's a woman named Chloe who sends her people to Paul, listing all of the problems. He addresses those right off. In chapters 7 through 16, then, he gets into some particular questions. He's received a mail from the church, and he begins to answer those questions one by one. In chapter 7, verse 1, he begins with marriage. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, that saying is like a mile marker throughout the later chapters of the letter, identifying these questions and then responding. Our passage falls under one of these. 
chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. In the time in which Paul lived, meat which was eaten was often sacrificed to pagan idols. It's part of pagan worship. And the Corinthians, these new Christians, didn't know what to do. How do we handle this? Can we eat sacrificed meat? Can we go to pagan temples? Paul essentially says, follow your conscience on eating the meat. Don't cause a brother to stumble. Do not go back to the pagan temple. That is idolatry. He then cites Israel as an example. An example of idolatry. And the pursuit of things more than the pursuit of God. And that brings us to our chapter, chapter 10. We read it a moment ago. You see, God blessed Israel, says Paul. And he cites five gracious gifts God gave them. In verse 1, he gave extraordinary guidance, this pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness. He offered up miraculous deliverance, parting a Red Sea. He provided godly leadership. God gave them Moses. In verse 3, there was abundant provision in the form of food in the wilderness. And then in verse 4, supernatural water, a drink in the desert. These tremendous gifts, these generous blessings, listen to this church, it does not mean automatic success. God can give everything. God can lay it all out. But we must respond in obedience. Israel was to respond in obedience. It's not automatic. And in verse 5, we learned that God was not pleased with many of them. And they were struck down in the wilderness. In the case of Israel, she sinned. And just as God gave five gracious gifts, we learn of five shameful sins on the part of Israel. In verse 6, they had greedy cravings. You can read of this back in the book of Numbers with meat still stuck in their teeth. God struck them down. In verse 7, there's idolatrous worship. You know the story of the golden calf. In verse 8, it's sexual immorality. These are with the women of Moab. It's an immorality. And then in verse 9, they're, they're questioning God. Is this wilderness journey, is this really the best path? And in verse 10, we learn that they even spurned God's leaders, rebelling against Moses and against Aaron. And then in the case of Corinth the point, she bore an eerie resemblance to all that. Because at Corinth, they modified the Lord's Supper to appease their appetites. You'll see in verse 14, Paul commands them to flee idolatry, coming dangerously close to living a life like they used to. Earlier in the book, they permitted a sexual immorality among the church members They questioned the wisdom of the cross. They questioned the resurrection event. And they took issue with Paul and divided over church leaders. Paul says to them, listen, look back, remember Israel. These things happen as an example for us. They were written for our instruction, 
And it is to the Lord that Paul points the Corinthians, and it's to the Lord that I point you this morning in your moments of temptation. I want you to see first this morning the nearness of God in temptation. As we get into verse 13, I want you to first see the nearness of God in temptation. Jesus has been tempted just as you are. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now, temptation means quite simply an enticement to sin. An enticement to sin. Now, temptation is not sin. No one has sinned by being tempted. Rather, temptation wants to lure us into sin. And we understand this. Now, Jesus said, never said, your temptations are forgiven. Uh, as Brian read this morning, John the Baptist did not point at Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the temptations of the world. Temptation is, is not sin. That's an important distinction to make because often when one is tempted, one can feel as though they've sinned. No sin has occurred during temptation. Now, this English word trial and the English word temptation, they both come from the same Greek word in the Bible. And whether we see it appearing in our Bibles as temptation or as we see it appearing as trial, it all depends on the context. What's going on around this word? I might even say that the word is is somewhat neutral. The context is going to determine the translation. J. Adams calls the word colorless. It depends upon the context to get its specific cue. Is it a trial or is it a temptation? Now, you and I, believers, receive a regular testing. It's part of living the Christian life to be tested, to be tried. I believe most, if not all, of our trials can become temptations. Giving way to the flesh, disobeying God, that's when it moves from trial or from test to becoming temptation. There's a man named Alexander McLaren. He's a Scottish minister of a bygone era. He does a great job distinguishing between a a test and a temptation. He writes, temptation appeals to the worst part of the man with the wish that he may yield and, and do the wrong. But testing appeals to the better part of the man with the desire that he should stand. Temptation says, do this pleasant thing. Do not be hindered by the fact that it is wrong. Trial says, do this right and noble thing. Do not be hindered by the fact that it's painful. Trials can come from God. Temptations come from Satan, from the world, from our desires. Trials are a process for godly maturity. Temptations are a process for sinful expression. Trials bring completion and bring wholeness to our lives. Temptations bring emptiness. Trials have good motives. Temptations have evil motives. And trials seek to build you up where temptation, it seeks to drag you down. We might say, in summary, that in our lives we would regard temptation as evil, coming from Satan or from the flesh. And trials... Trials are good, coming from God himself. In verse 13, Paul describes the arrival of temptation. He says it overtakes. 
temptation overtakes. This word is used of catching fish in the New Testament. The call goes out to the Lord, Lord, Master, we worked all night and and we caught nothing. The disciples expressing that they, they worked hard at this and they could not catch any fish. They could not overtake them with the net. James chapter 1 then goes into detail and describes this process, what this overtaking is like. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and you'd be surprised, this whole process begins with you. It begins with us. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the strategy begins with enticement, leading to conception, ending in sin. This is what it's like when a temptation overtakes. Enticement, that's simply beginning with desire. Each one is enticed or each one is is, uh, tempted when, when enticed by a desire or by a lust. Some of the Bibles, some of your Bibles in James chapter 1, In verse 14, read lust. Again, it's a a neutral word. It can be translated as lust or desire. Negatively, in a negative context, it's translated lust. So something is is enticing the believer. And we want to keep in mind here that this idea of desires, desires aren't necessarily bad. Desires are given to us by God. In fact, they, they need not be sinful, and in many cases, we need them. Uh, you, you think about hunger. Hunger leads to eating, and, and thirst leads to drinking, and, and fatigue leads to sleep. But we also understand how, how these desires can become a problem when we seek to feed them or resolve them apart from God or outside God's will. For example, eating is normal, but gluttony is sin. Rest is normal, but laziness is sin. The list goes on. Where something very pure and and, and good given by God can be corrupted and become evil when satisfied apart from God's will. Well, in this chapter 1 of James, he begins by using a fishing metaphor to, to, to try to describe what happens. There's a desire that is sought outside of God's will. We might say that the hook is baited, it's shiny, the bait smells delicious, and everything's appealing to the senses. The appetite intensifies, and the caution, it it declines. And then eventually we're drawn away, we follow that lust, and we imagine its fulfillment. We've built and we've baited our trap, and the bait entices us and causes the next step conception. Conception, when, 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 when the desire has grown and we've pursued that, there's this conception. When lust is conceived, it births sin. And now James changes metaphors. He, he's speaking now of birthing. Uh, one preacher said it this way, saying yes to temptation has set in motion a series of events as certain and natural as childbirth. We might say that desires become pregnant and they give birth to sin. We're moving now from temptation to wickedness, from temptation to sin. 
And James says, thirdly, that sin brings forth death. When the full cycle is accomplished, sin brings death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. All the way back when Adam and Eve first ate the fruit, death entered the human race. And you and I understand that certain kinds of sins, certainly they they hasten death more quickly than others. Um, Gluttony and, and, and drunkenness and promiscuity, those types of sins practiced consecutively or consistently, they can bring about death much sooner than other kinds. But but worst of all, unrepentant sin, it brings about an eternal death, something spiritual. It's a separation from God for eternity. And James here has described then how temptation overtakes, how it begins here and ends over here. But notice back in our passage now, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Paul says, whatever the temptation... Whatever has overtaken you, he says it is common to man. And he's already proved this in verses 7 through 10. Remember, back there he drew a line between those Old Testament Israel, Israelites and, and the Corinthian believers. Here's their experience, he said, back from the Old Testament, and, and here's yours, Corinth. It's a common experience. Each of us is going to experience temptations. Temptations are are guaranteed. Jesus experienced temptation. Reading that account carefully, you learn that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, he led Jesus out to be tempted. Now you and I, each of us, may experience different types of temptations, Some may be tempted by lust or by greed or by laziness. Others may be tempted by anger or anxiety or gossip. And each of us may even experience various intensities of the temptation. Some may be more severe, a laziness that that interferes with work or, or keeping a job or perhaps an anger that damages relationships. But we must not, we need to be careful not to condemn others who have different temptations or struggle with different sins. Man, I can't believe he's still struggling with that after all these years. That's not a good approach because temptation is different for everyone in different types and different degrees and different intensities. And each of us knows that we have a log in our own eye to Saul, let alone worrying about others. The sin that results from temptation, it could be worse than the life of someone else with more severe consequences, but we still must stop short of condemning them, particularly if we ought to be helping them. But Paul's point here is that in in some way we all share a common experience. Your temptation, Paul would say, is not unique. Others experience what you do. And we might even say this, our other believers are are fighting it. I think that when we consider our temptations unique, we actually invite other problems. First, I think if we think this way, we can justify the temptation or justify the sin that results from it. 
You know, with an attitude of no one understands, that might be an easy excuse to commit the sin. Secondly, this way of thinking isolates. I mean, Satan wants to back you into a corner. Satan wants you to feel alone. He wants you to believe that you're the odd case. And I'd say that once sin is secluded, once you're secluded, sin can breed. Isolation is the petri dish for sin. I think thirdly, to consider my temptation unique is defeating. If no one else experiences this out there, how can there be any solution? Mine is so rare, it's so intense, it's been going on for so long, I'm doomed. But the Bible declares no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And I want to ask you this morning, do you ever feel overtaken by temptation? Remember Israel, verses 6 through 10. It could be some kind of cravings or desires that you have. It could be making some object an idol. I mean, forget about this idea of a statue. It's treasuring and worshiping anything in your heart greater or more than God. It could be sexual lust. It could be other kinds of, of lusts or desires that are so intense. Maybe it's doubting God or questioning God. Maybe it's a temptation to hate or, or, or to stoke a bitterness, just as Israel spurned Moses and Aaron. It could be something else. A temptation will say, yours is unique. And what it wants to do is make you feel isolated and trapped, and defeated, and discouraged, maybe even a bit cynical toward God. But you are not alone. You are not unique in this. And I would say not only do countless Christians fight similar temptation, whether it's kind or intensity or duration, but Jesus himself understands Hebrews chapter 4, verses, verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The scope of that statement is remarkable. Think about that. Tempted in all things as we are? I feel like it's so easy for me to list ways that Jesus is not tempted. I'm in 2023 and the world is different, but that's not what the text says. The text argues back at me and says, no, Michael, Jesus has been tempted these ways. And as a result, the author of Hebrews then offers an invitation. It's the next verse. It's beautiful. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can talk to God. Anytime. Anywhere about this. But notice the context again. This is in the weakness of temptation. That's the context for this. Certainly we want to call upon God and pray to Him, no matter what. But this is a special call. This is a unique location for this call. In the midst of temptation, call upon God. Jesus, God in the flesh, experienced it. 
Well, that's the nearness of God in temptation. I want you to see, secondly, the faithfulness of God in temptation. It's our second point this morning. Not only is God near in temptation, but God is faithful in temptation. And you heard that. Paul said it. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. This is our hope in temptation. A faithful God. That is to say that God is consistently reliable and God is absolutely dependable. The Bible describes God as a refuge and God as a rock and, and, and rightly so. He is our, our perfect guardian and he is our steadfast foundation. Even the pagan prophet Balaam, who did not know God, says God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Here he acknowledges that God is faithful. And we see in our verse this morning that his faithfulness is connected to our limitations. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Now don't misread this. Because you have heard, you've heard it said, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. God often gives us more than we can handle. In life, for sure, but in temptation, here too. After all, if we could handle it, why do we need God? What I think Paul is saying here is that we are never going to be tempted to the point of where sin becomes inevitable where we have to commit the sin because the temptation is too great. No, that's not true. And this too, by the way, is a statement about the sovereignty of God in your temptation. God draws the lines. God builds the boundaries. God fences the field. We read in James that God does not tempt anyone, but just because God doesn't tempt anyone means that he has set aside his sovereign control over our lives in that moment of temptation. He's still in control. When God invited Satan to test Job, God never tempted Job to sin. Satan did that. And we might even say that Job's ordeal could have been a test or a temptation. I think in some ways it was both. Revisiting how that word is used and translated as test or temptation. But the episodes in Job's life, they never occurred outside of God's control. You can read those first few chapters of Job. There's actually a dialogue between God and Satan about his testing or temptation. God drew a line. Satan never crossed it. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And that means this morning, believer, that God knows your limits. God knows how far temptation could go for you. And God is not going to allow you to be tempted to the point of inevitable sin. Victory is possible. That's another way to say it. You can successfully refuse temptation by saying no. 
But part of this, and mark this, that's the point here, is we need to call upon God. We need to lean on God. We want to be careful not to lean upon ourselves or our past victories, or previous experience, or good wisdom and advice. We need God in the moment. There needs to be some kind of desperation and and weakness, a humility about ourselves when it comes to temptation and sin. Because God is a rock. I'm not a rock. God is my refuge. I'm not my refuge. I need to turn to God in temptation because God is reliable. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, God is faithful in your temptation. And God is near in your temptation. And thirdly, God provides in temptation. I want you to see thirdly this provision of God in temptation. And this would really be a second application of of the faithfulness of God. We just saw how God's faithful to know our limits Here God is faithful to our endurance. This may be a different way to to, to view or consider temptation, maybe a way you haven't thought about before. Uh, Paul concludes this verse by saying, with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God provides escape in temptation. And there's a a definite aspect to this. Notice that Paul writes, the temptation. He speaks in definite terms when he talks about this way of escape. He says, the way of escape. Now, some of your English Bibles say, a way of escape. I don't know why that is, because it's definitely the way of escape in the original language. In other words, the escape is going to correspond to the temptation. To which you and I want to know, what is this way of escape? That's the million-dollar question in the moment, is it not? I do imagine it's going to be different for each of us. It's going to depend upon the temptation. It's going to depend upon our history with the temptation and our, our, our experience with it. I also want to observe here that it almost sounds like God takes the initiative in doing this. Paul writes with this certainty. It's a definite future tense. God will provide. Not to say it would be a bad idea to ask God, Lord, show me the way out. We could certainly do that as well. But again, there's something that seems very proactive about God's role in this. And notice how God, what God provides, relates to the purpose. He provides the way of escape. So you can avoid the sin? So you can escape temptation? No, the Bible says he provides the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Meaning that it's not an escape hatch. It's not an exit door. It's not a vine on which you swing across the canyon of sin. It's not the easy way. I believe if we are looking for the quick, easy way out, we may miss the means God provides of escape. You see, this way of escape doesn't remove us from the temptation, but it gives us what we need to endure it. 
You know, in those first few verses of chapter 10, we read them. God did not teleport Israel over the Red Sea and through the wilderness. They went through the Red Sea, and they went through the wilderness. And God provided what they needed, whether they took it or not, is another story. And we can ask other figures from the Bible. We can ask when you were tempted, Noah, to doubt all those years that you built the ark. We can ask, were you tempted Sarah to disbelieve God's promise of a child? Were you tempted David to hate when you were hiding in caves from Saul? Were you tempted Joseph to plot murder sitting in that Egyptian prison cell? Or were you tempted Daniel to spurn your calling as a prophet when the lid of that lion's den slid shut? You see, all of these people who went before us They were tempted. And the means God provided them was to go through the temptation and not magically appear on the other side. God gives grace to endure. And knowing this then informs our response to temptation. No doubt sometimes God does immediately give us a way out. The circumstance can change very quickly and very easily, and that's fine. But oftentimes, you and I must endure the temptation, leaning on God, trusting God, accepting His provision to endure. You know, this morning in this text, we learned that our temptations are not unique. They overtake others as well. And we learned that in those temptations, God is faithful He's not going to allow us to become victims. He's going to give us an opportunity to endure and and a means of escape. In closing, what I want to do here is address what would be two polar extremes to this message. Two attitudes about temptation and then our relationship to it this morning. First, there's a temptation, to use the word, to underthink this. Maybe you're sailing through life today. You don't particularly feel tempted. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years, or you know those Old Testament stories that Paul cited. Maybe you're not sinning in any big ways. You know the big major ones. You're hardly tempted at all. There'll be others here this morning who overthink this. Um, When you're tempted, you feel as though you've sinned. You doubt your salvation because of temptation. Maybe you hear this message, but you still resolutely declare, you don't understand. I'm drowning. I'm done. God helps others, but God doesn't help me. To both of these attitudes, to those who overthink it and those who underthink it, if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Because both are completely wrong. Two extremes on opposite ends. And to those in our first group, Paul reminds us that the things that happened to Israel, they happened for our instruction. We don't graduate away from temptation. And if you're not suffering in major ways this morning, that is great. But take heed lest you fall, says Paul. Read your Bible. Look back to Israel. That is an example for your instruction. And I would say here as well this morning, if if sin is not an issue in your life, 
if you quite easily give in to temptation without too much of a thought, if, it, if it's not a problem, we need to begin with the gospel. We need to, 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 to desire Jesus. I guess I should ask you, do you, do you want to stop sinning this morning? Do you want to please God? Do you want to honor God with your life? There ought to be some rock in our shoe if we're giving into temptation, if sin is present and occupying a place in our lives. You see, God can change all this. The Bible tells us that we are sinners. It's not a surprise that we sin. We sin because we're sinners. But the Bible also declares that, that we can be forgiven for that sin and we can be made right with God. Because Jesus Christ came and he died for your sin and he rose again. He paid the price that you owe. And if you turn from your sin and you lean on God for power to overcome it, God will grant that. God will give you salvation and eternity and he'll give you power to live today. To our second group, those who might overthink this passage, it's true, temptation doesn't fight fair. It's going to feed on our weakness. It's going to prey on our minds. It's going to bite when we're least ready. But you are not alone. God has gifted this church with men and women who will come alongside you and sit with you and listen to you and love you and help you in that temptation. I want to do that for you if I'm the right guy for that. But you need to know that you're not alone. And you don't have to keep sinning if you're struggling this morning. Today may be the time for you to fight back. No more parkers. No more bridges. God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we, we do sin. We confess that we feel the, the heat of temptation and we need your help. I pray for us this morning, Lord, that you would grant us a grace to fight sin, to endure temptation, that each of us would see the way of escape and we would see your faithfulness. God, you are so faithful to your people. Your faithfulness is great. We love you. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.